Welcome to the New Beginning Fellowship Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you are listening to the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We pray that this message encourages you and builds your faith. We also pray that this message is only supplemental to your spiritual growth instead of being a replacement for daily personal Bible study, the pastor you should be submitted to, or the church God would have you to be an active member of. If you live within driving distance of Brobridge, Louisiana, we hope that you would come to visit us during one of our services on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Service times, ministry information, and giving options are all located on our website at newbeginningfc.com or on our Facebook page at New Beginning Fellowship Church. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. To the book of Galatians, the letter of Paul to the church in Galatia. And we're going to have an altar call at the end of the service and believe for God to stir our heart and to minister to us that same anointing that's meeting us right now and ministering to our heart. We believe is going to be with us through the word and be with us as we seek the face of the Lord. After that, we will do the announcements, but we're going to go to the word of the Lord this morning and ask him to speak to our hearts. The book of Galatians and the second chapter, the book of Galatians and the second chapter And we're going to look this morning from verses 19 to 21. As we consider this morning, this letter and what we're studying, and it has this twofold emphasis this morning. It's how do we know God? And if that's how we know God, that's how we ought to live. Amen? That's what we're studying this morning. If this is how we come into a relationship with the Lord... If this is how God receives us, then we should live in that way. Amen? And I want to tell you this morning that there is real hope for us in the Word of God. There is real promise for us in the Word of God. And if you want to know the Lord, this is the way that we're going to know Him. Amen? Amen? This is the way that we're going to come to Him in relationship is the way that He describes. He sets the terms of relationship And this morning, this is what he craves for us. He longs for us to be in relationship with Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to look this morning at verse 19, verse 20, and verse 21. This is what Paul says. He says, for though, he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Listen to that. There's a progression of thought. Something happened so that something else could happen. He says, through the law, I died to the law. Now, usually after death, there's, no, there's nothing after that, right? Death is the end of something, and it doesn't offer beginnings. But he says, this death that I died led to a new beginning. He says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, 
then Christ died for no purpose. I want to speak to you this morning about death and life. Death and life, that's the title of my message to you this morning. I have a longer title, but it won't fit on anything that we would put a title on. And so I'll just share it to you now as a descriptor. Subtitle, it is this, A Hope-Filled Death. A Hope-Filled Death to Fleshly Striving. In other words, I'm dying. But there's a hope in this dying. What is that hope to this dying? I'm dying to something I'm dying to the effort, the continual, unsuccessful effort of trying to do something under my own power. And I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I am exhausted. I'm worn out. And rather than giving it another try, and another try, and another try, I'm realizing it's hopeless. And so I'm going to die to that. But on the other side of this death, there is resurrection. A hope-filled death to fleshly striving, but then a faith-filled resurrection to grace living. A faith-filled resurrection to grace living. That I have faith that I will be raised with Christ to live in the grace of God. A new kind of living. A new kind of trying to please God. A new term of relationship between me and the Lord. It's that as I believe that He's gracious to me, I'll be able to live. Amen? Praise God. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank You for the opportunity to come to Your Word. And we ask, Lord, that it would be powerful and effective, that it would be living and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it would pierce our hearts, that it would cut us, not, not to kill us, Lord, but to create a wound by which we might be healed. Lord, that our heart would be renewed by the grace of God. And we ask that you would come and that you would bring us to life in Christ. Lord, that you would bring us to the feet of Jesus, that we would trust him to supplant and to replace and to displace death with life, to bring in hope where there is hopelessness and joy where there is sorrow. Lord, we cannot live this life that you require of us on our own, but we believe that you have united us to Christ. And in that we have life, and in that we have victory, and in that we have rest. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. The text that we're looking at this morning is the end of a part three of Paul's personal experiences that he records for us from Galatians chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2 here in verse 21. The first part of that, the first testimony that he has in Galatians chapter 1, 11 through 24, is he's telling us that his gospel didn't come from man, that he received it from a revelation of Jesus Christ. The second one is from chapter 2 verse 1 to verse 10, where he tells us that anointed godly men did affirm that message, that they did recognize that that message came from God. And then the third part in verse 11 through 21, Paul tells us that his gospel stands in authority. 
even above the most influential and anointed of men, even that he is able to rebuke the apostle Peter because Peter was not walking in step with the gospel. He was not living as a man who truly understood the gospel and was giving it to other people. He was being a hypocrite. He was allowing the self-righteous, judgmental attitude of other people to control the way that he lived, specifically in that there were people who were not Jews, who were in the church, they were part of God's covenant people, and they were believing in Jesus Christ, they were born again, they were in the church, but they weren't circumcised, they weren't keeping the the specific holidays, the days that they were supposed to, um, to witness to and to affirm in the Jewish faith, they weren't eating a kosher diet, and yet... Peter's okay with it, and he realizes you don't have to keep this law, and even Peter himself wasn't keeping it. Paul says that he was living as a man who was not a Jew. He says in verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. You're here among these non-Jewish believers, and you're eating pork sandwiches, and you're wearing mixed fabrics. You're not living as a Jew, Peter. But then these other Jews came from Jerusalem and he felt like, well, I can't be around them. I can't participate in the things that they're doing. I can't affirm that they're really in the faith if they're not doing the things that the law says that they should be doing. There was a freedom from the law. There was a realization that the law was fulfilled in Christ and he didn't have to keep those ceremonial rules anymore. But then these men came around and he said, no, I feel like I can't do those things or they're going to judge me. And the implication to those who were not Jews was, well, we're not as good as the Jews. We're not as good as those who are doing the right things. And therefore, we feel like we're outside of the covenant relationship of God. We feel like we're not part of the body. We feel like we're really not in. And now we feel compelled to do these things or we're not really saved. Paul confronts him to his face. He rebukes him. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And he says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In other words, we have the benefit of walking after the covenant. We know the promise of God. We know the word of God. And we are not sinners like they are. We've not done the things that they've done. In so many ways, we've been better than them. But even though we've done that, we failed and we found that we're sinners too. We crossed the T's, we dotted the I's, we did our best, we gave it the old college try. We did all that we could do, and yet he says in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Right? We're not sinners of the Gentiles, those sinful Gentiles who don't have the law and have the standard and have the, the statutes and the rules to keep. We're not like them. And he says, eventually I realized I'm just like them. And that in trying to be justified in Christ, I realized there's a reason that I need to be justified in Christ because I'm a sinner like they're a sinner. And the law has shown me that I'm a wicked man and that I need salvation. And it must come from some other source than me. And so he says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And what we talked about last week is there were two options. 
And I think the second option is the right one. That I think what he's saying is, if I rebuild, if I accept the premise of these Jewish people who claim that I have to go back to the law and that we should be preaching the law and I've torn down that construct in the minds of people and I told them that you can be justified by simple faith in Christ. You turn from sin and you believe the Messiah that his death will justify you and save you and if I go back and tell them you have to keep the law and I build up that construct in their mind again then I'm still a sinner because I was wrong for ever having torn it down in the first place. In other words, no matter what I do, I'm a sinner that needs to be saved apart from works. So even if you're right that it's by works and I need to do these things, well, then I'm still in trouble. Because for a time I taught that that wasn't true. And now I'm found out I'm just a sinner. And so either way, the Lord must be able to save me apart from anything that I can do. And then Paul is going to describe his personal experience of how he came to this revelation, of how he realized that the law was not a good means, it was not a uh, sufficient means to sanctify himself, to save himself, because the law condemned him. Now before we do that, I want to give you a short explanation of the law and what we mean by that. Because one of the problems is that so many of us are more familiar with the new covenant than we are the old covenant. And what we end up doing is when we say we're not under the law, we begin to paint the law as a bad thing, an evil thing, a wrong thing. And we see it in a wrong light. And frankly, we need to see that the law, Paul says, is good and holy. It is beautiful. There's a reason the psalmist could say, but in the law, I delight day and night. Amen? And we as Christians would go, you can't delight in the law. The, the law can't save you. And you, I would say to you, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. It's not that the law is bad. It's that the law is good. The reason why the law doesn't work for you is not because it's bad. It's because it is good and you are not good. Amen? The problem's not the law. The problem's you. There's nothing insufficient in the law. There's something insufficient in you. But the law requires sufficiency in you. And so the Old Covenant can be summarized in these words, do and live. Don't do and die. Very simple, right? The law is not very complicated. It's not complex. It's not so nuanced. You need to be a scholar to understand it. It's very direct. Do and live. Don't do and you die. Listen to this phrase in Exodus 19.5. It says, now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. If you do the things that I tell you to do, if you obey, you'll be mine. Listen to the responsibility that God gave them in order to fulfill the terms of this covenant relationship. The word of the Lord says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 through 20, listen to this. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. 
You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. And then listen to this statement. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. He says, I'm sitting before you two options. Obey, keep my rules, keep my standards, do all the things that you should do, and you'll live. And it's blessing, and it's life, and it's all of the goodness that you need. It's yours. Just choose this. Do that, and you'll live. But there's also before you the option of cursing, of disobedience and sin and unfaithfulness. And if you disobey, you will die. And I'm calling heaven and earth to witness against you because one generation may agree and then die and the next generation comes. But the heavens that were there for the first generation will be there for the last generation. And all of creation will witness against you that you have a responsibility to be faithful to God. The heavens that declare the glory of God. The heavens that tell you there is a God who is sovereign and all-powerful and made you and witnesses that God is real also witnesses you must obey and if you don't obey you'll obey you'll be cursed the terms of this covenant were that of obedience God was holding Israel responsible to do the things that he commanded in order for them to be in the covenant and to receive the benefits of that covenant and Israel responded to God's covenant terms in Exodus 19 7 through 8 So Moses came and called the elders of all the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This this is the response God wanted. He wanted them to say, you got it. Do everything. Check off all the list. Keep all the rules. Keep the statutes. You got it. We'll do it. It says, okay. And Moses reported the words of the Lord, or the words of the people to the Lord. This is understandable, right? Here, here are the options. Here are the terms of our agreement. You can keep it, and you'll get all the blessing. You got it. We'll do it. This is, the reason that this is folly is because it's, you can accept the terms of the covenant, but can you fulfill it? Right? Someone can offer to you, listen, I'm going to give you a ranch, 500 acres, three-story house, beautiful barn, horses, cow, all of this. It's a beautiful place. It's amazing. It's more than you could ever wish for. It's got ATVs and four-wheelers and pools. and, and every, It's just a beautiful place. Mountain range views, rivers running through it. It's so beautiful if you can pay the note. If you can pay, if you pay on time, all the time, consistently, then you'll get the blessing. You'll get to be here. You got it. There's one problem. Human nature is insufficient to keep the tenets of such a covenant. And God knew it from the beginning, but we didn't know it from the beginning, and so he must show it to us. 
It says in Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 29, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. A witness against me? Like, we're friends. we got a relationship going. Why do you need someone to, to sit on the bench and to testify against me? What's going on? To witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call them, call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands because God knows our hearts. But we don't know our hearts because the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And we can be so evil and never be able to face it. And never be able to acknowledge it. And the word of the Lord says that every man will declare his innocence. Every man will say, I'm good. I'm a basically good person. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm striving. I make mistakes, but I'm trying. And God says, I'm going to give you a standard that will expose you for what you are. Romans chapter 3 says that what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and what the law is trying to do is to shut the mouth of every man. So that every time you would answer back and go, yeah, but I love you, well, you've worshipped other gods. Well, I'm trying to be a good person, but you've lusted in your heart, which is adultery. Well, I'm trying to serve the Lord. Yeah, but you worship idols. You're idolizing things and you're putting your hope in it. I'm trying to shut your mouth so that you'll never be able to say, I can can give it another shot. I can give it another effort. effort. I can keep the standard. God knows that we're incapable. Through the Old Testament narrative books and throughout the word of the prophets, we see continually how Israel was faithless to the covenant that God had made with them. Isaiah 24 and 5 gives the list of Israel's failures. And one of it is this. It says, they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. The covenant is variously described throughout the Old Testament as being broken, Jeremiah 11.10, Abandoned, Jeremiah 22 and verse 9. Not remembered, Amos 1, 9. Corrupted, Malachi 2, 8. And profaned, Malachi 2, 10. This is the lesson that man is unable to meet the demands of any covenant that is dependent upon one's personal responsibility to fulfill God's righteousness or earn his favor. So God's response was a covenant of grace. Those same prophets who listed Israel's faithlessness to God's covenant also prophesied of a coming Messiah and his new covenant that God would graciously make to redeem his people and save them from their own helpless condition. The text we're studying this morning is Paul's personal testimony of how that transition from the old covenant to the new covenant took place. Because here's the problem. That people throughout time have always seen the standard of God's word and thought, well, let me try again. And Paul had to be brought to the end of himself 
so that he could realize he could not try again. Amen? Listen what he says in verse 19. Back to our main text, Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says this. He says, For through the law I died to the law. Not apart from the law. Not independent of the law. Not that I left the law. No, the law performed its perfect utility. It did what it was intended to do. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the ministry of death. The law that was meant to slay me. The law of commandments and statutes and rules. The perfect standard of God that witnessed against me with heaven and earth. You are a sinner. And the the law continually telling me, don't disobey, don't disobey, don't disobey. And I try and I try and I try and I try. And finally, the condemnation of the law had its effect on me. Finally, I stopped running from its condemnation and I embraced its condemnation. Men spend their entire lives trying to run from the condemnation of the Word of God. Trying to justify themselves. Trying to change themselves. Trying to be better thinking, well, maybe tomorrow and maybe tomorrow and maybe tomorrow. He says, no. This is not something God is disappointed in. It's not something that surprises the Lord. The Lord's not in heaven going, here's the law and here's you, and I just can't believe you keep failing to fulfill this standard. The law was given to show you that you could not fulfill its standard. It's the ministry of death. This ministry that promised life and blessing to which you could never attain also promised death. And this death was not bad. It was not evil. He says... It needed to take place through the law. I died to the law. I died to the law. What does it mean that he died to the law? It means that once he lived to the law, that the law was the means by which he tried to get to God. The law continually compels people, come to God, come to God, come to God. Be faithful to God. And over and over, come to the Lord, come to the Lord, come to the Lord. And then it puts up a veil and says you can come no further. Oh, God. God wants us near to him. The Lord is constantly calling to us, dealing with us to enter into relationship with us or to enter into relationship with him. But he gave the law as a means to come to him that would say you can come to a certain degree, but then you can come no further. You can come this far. And the blood of bulls and of goats and of lambs will allow your sins to be covered, not washed away. Notice the language of the Old Testament that constantly the promise is that I will cover your sins. I will cover your sins. Your sins are still present. Your sins are still on the books. Your sins are still a reality, but I'll cover them. I'll cover them. I'll cover them until David gets to a point where there is no sacrifice to cover his sin. And David gets to the point where he commits two sins for which there is no sacrifice. There is no sacrifice for murder. And there is no sacrifice for adultery. And for thousands of years, for hundreds of years at that point, the promise to the sacrifice was, I'll cover your sins. I'll cover your sins. I'll cover your sins. And David commits a sin for which there is no covering. And he doesn't ask for covering. He says, blot out my transgressions. Blot it out. There's nothing to cover, so you've got to blot it out. 
You've got to remove it. You've got to provide a way of salvation that is beyond temporary patch. That's beyond just making a covering so it's not so visible anymore. Remove the record completely. Remove the record. David was a man living under the new covenant before the new covenant even was. Because this was always the way of salvation. God just had to lead us step by step to that point. And he was a man, the same man who was told by God that I will give you a king who will sit on your throne that will rule forever. And this gracious Messiah who will save the world will come through your line and he will even save you, David. Your seed will save you. And so in faith, he calls out, blot out my transgressions. Blot it out. Remove the record completely. Oh, what a promise we have. And Paul gets to the point where he says, there is no remedy for me. There is no promise for me. I've run to the end of this road, and the veil is still there. And through the law, I died to the law. The law slew me. The law condemned me. The law brought me to death. Can I tell you, instead of running from condemnation, will you embrace it? Because we jump, we jump the gun. We skip the process. We're raised in church, you believe in Jesus, and then you wrestle with condemnation. How many of you have said that after you were born again, you knew that you were saved, but over and over you wrestled with condemnation. You wrestled and you wrestled, and you said, I know that Scripture says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but I still feel condemned. I still feel condemned. I still feel condemned. The problem is you're trying to run from condemnation when you need to embrace it. You need to allow the verdict of the law to cry out over your life. You are dead and you have no hope in yourself. Our problem is not that the law keeps trying to kill us and it won't stop. The problem is we keep trying to live. And he says the law had its final work in me. How did it have its final work? He says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. This was a cursed death. Amen? Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. That's what he's going to quote in chapter 3. He's going to get to that point where he says, and Jesus became a curse for us. He was cursed in our place. He took our curse of sin upon himself so that he could unite us to himself and that I could be united with him and the law trying to kill me and I unite myself to Christ so that I can pass through the condemnation of the law with him. And that as he became cursed, I could embrace the curse of the righteous condemnation of God against my sin and that I could be crucified. I could come to an end. This old sinful man that continually fails and is never satisfying the heart of God and is never living up to the standard and never doing everything that I can do, that man died. I have been crucified with Christ. That man that had a responsibility to fulfill the law of God, that man is dead because Romans chapter 7 verse 1 says, we know that the law is binding on a man only as long as he lives. The law has nothing to say to men who have died, right? That's his point. The law was spoken to the living. And so he says, by the grace of God, I've died. 
so that the law no longer has anything to say to me. The law can no longer hold its authority over my life to condemn me because I've been united with Christ in his death. And so he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Can I tell you, this is my heart for you. When we get into church and we talk about the things of God and how to live for God, and we find one another struggling with condemnation, often what we do is we try to deliver each other from condemnation. That's a good heart. I know what we mean by that. But the problem is too many of us are trying to just say, you're not condemned, you're not condemned, you're not condemned. But the law has not had its work in us yet. What we need is not to be delivered from condemnation. It's not to be delivered from death. Our heart is infirmed and sick and dying on a bed. And rather than trying to mend our heart so that we're not so sick, we just need to let death take its course. It was out of love that Jesus let Lazarus die. It was out of love. He loved his friend. And Jesus said, I know that you are there dying on the bed. But rather than coming to raise you up to save you from death, I will let you die so that you will find your resurrection in me. And I say to you, some of you still feel condemned and you don't know why. And you go, I believe grace. I believe Jesus died for me. I trust him. But you don't realize the ways that you are still alive to some shred of hope that you will be able to be better tomorrow and do better tomorrow and please God more and earn his favor more. And you'll be able to live up to the standard. If only you could have another day to pray. If only you could have another day to get in the word. If only you could have another day to try and say, please help me, Lord. And the Lord says, I will not help you and your self-effort to justify yourself. Either I am your only hope of righteousness, or I'm none of it. And out of mercy, I'm going to let you die. I'm going to allow life to overwhelm you. I'm going to allow you to fail, and I'm going to allow your sins to be so glaring in your life that the ministry of death will have its perfect work in you. That the law will finally be able to slay you. Say, I'm trying to live. I want to live for Jesus. But that old man can't live. That old man can't live. He says, for the life that I live, it's not me that's living. It is no longer I who live. He couldn't receive that from me. The Lord couldn't receive that old life. He had to put this old man to death. This self-righteous man, this religious man, this man that's trying to be moral and trying to be spiritual and trying to be religious and trying to please God, he can never receive it from my hand. And so he let me die. He let the law slay me. Rather than delivering you from your condemnation, Jesus would say to you this, let it slay you. Let it slay you. Let the verdict of the law cry out over your life. Cursed. Dead. Hopeless. Slain. Give your neck to the noose. Give your heart to the sword and die to any hope of saving your own self. And as you do that, Jesus will allow you to be united to him. And you will die to the law. You can be raised to live to God. Amen? That's what he says. I'm dead to the law through the law. 
that I might live to God, that God, that I might no longer try to go through the law to get to him and then be met with a veil, but that the blood can be poured out from the Lamb of God and the veil can be torn and I can go past the veil into the very near presence of God and yea, even be the temple of the living God. But that's not just how you get in, it's how you stay in. It's how you stay in. You don't die to any hope of righteousness in yourself to be born again and then try to start accumulating righteousness so that you'll be received by God. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and even now it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's Christ living in me. Christ living in me. You know, for the longest time, because so much of my theology is rooted in Romans chapter 6, I saw this passage as dealing with the sanctified life of living holy in Christ, that it's Christ living and animating his life in me so that I can live a transformed life. And that is true from Romans 6. But in this context, he's dealing with the self that's trying to please God, that I'm dead to that old effect. I'm dead to that old way of trying to please the Lord. And now I'm living to God. It's Christ living his righteous life in me, not only that he's given me his righteousness then to remove my sin, but even now he's living his righteous life in me, that God views me righteous because the righteous one is on the inside. Amen? Praise God. So you don't go from law to trying to be justified by grace to then back to law trying to earn your righteousness. He said, it's Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Can I tell you, he says, the life I live in the flesh, this is an in-the-world, effectual, behavior-changing kind of life. It is a life in the flesh, in the world, right? This isn't some fairy tale, fanatical, fantasy, dream life. This is right now in the world. I'm living. This is how I live, by faith in the Son of God. And who is this Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me? This is the point. This is not dead, cold, theoretical, merely philosophical reasoning in Paul's mind. This is intimately personal. Jesus loved me, the lawbreaker, the sinner, the persecutor of the church, of all of my sin, before I could ever do anything to earn his favor, or I could ever give him any service, or I could ever give him anything, before I could ever deposit something to him and say, here is my life, and here is my obedience, and here are my prayers, and here is my walk with God, before I could ever offer anything to him, he loved me and offered himself for me so that my relationship with Christ is rooted in him and what he's done and not what I'm doing. It's rooted in him. I have faith in him because he loves me. Amen? (laughs) This, This is not just out of mere religious duty that he has faith in Christ. I can trust him because he loves me. Amen? I can trust him because he loves me. It is one thing to say that for God so loved the world, and that's wonderful, isn't it? For God so loved the world. But as it is our nature that we always think, well, God can have grace on them, but he can't have grace on me. Or God can heal their brokenness, but my brokenness is too broken. 
Or God can forgive them, but he can't forgive all of this in me. My sins are too mighty. He can never save me for all that I've done or I've failed to consistently or I can't do it. And Paul says, I know that he loved everybody else, but I know that he loved me and he gave himself for me. And because I know that he loved me, I trust him. I'm able to lean on him. I'm able to depend upon him, right? I can't lean on me because my love is not consistent. My faithfulness is not really faithful. But he loved me perfectly. And this is what he says in verse 21. Brother Renee, if you would come. The worship team would come. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't frustrate it. I don't abolish it. I don't abrogate it. I don't discount God's grace. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died in vain or for no purpose. Now I tell you, the cross is the central event of all of redemptive history. It is the most meaningful thing that Jesus Christ did. The cross is the most meaningful thing that Jesus the Messiah did. And here's the point. If by trying to please God in and of myself, I am trying to do what Jesus has done for me, I am saying that the cross is not meaningful because it is not effective. For something to be meaningful, it must be effective. And if the cross is merely a beautiful idea or some sort of illustration or a picture of, of real manly character or love or sacrifice or some merely philosophical or th theoretical thing, then it's not effectual. And if it's not effectual, if it can't accomplish something, then it is truly not meaningful. It doesn't mean anything. And if we will not let the grace of God alone save us, we make the grace of God null and void, and the cross null and void, and we say it is therefore not meaningful. The most important thing Jesus did has no meaning for me because I don't live like it can work. I don't live like it's accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish, and that being giving me righteousness. Can I tell you this morning, I wonder how many of us sit in church and we sing songs about the blood and we sing about grace, but we, are, we have yet to be slain by the law and we are still trying to do what God has done on our behalf and we are still trying to please the Lord in our own effort and we are making the cross of no effect. Can I tell you this morning, I know that there are those among us even now are struggling with condemnation and I tell you no amount of encouragement no amount of peppy words no amount of religious thoughts no amount of praying no amount of encouraging yourself or other people encouraging you and telling you you're not condemned you're not condemned you're not condemned will free you from that until you have yielded to that condemnation until you accept it as a true verdict not to be escaped but embraced until you let the law have its perfect work, until it can lay the sword to your neck and say sin has condemned you and you are doomed. 
And until you unite yourself to Christ in faith and say, Lord, I trust you to let me pass through death believing that with you I will be raised to a new hope of a grace-filled life, believing that then I will finally be able to receive grace, that I cannot receive it on my own. I cannot earn it. I cannot merit it. I cannot afford it. I cannot make the payment. I cannot keep the rule. I cannot set the standard, but you have on my behalf. And what I cannot earn, you give as a gift. And I'll receive it in Jesus' mighty name. This morning, if you would stand with me, I encourage you this morning to do business with God. And maybe you agree with these things theologically. Maybe you would look at it and go, well, that's scripture and that's true, but your heart still condemns you. Maybe that's where you're at. You go, I agree with that. I don't need to come down and pray that I would understand it. I understand it. I agree with it. I believe it. But you would say, my heart is still condemned. And I would say to you, there's a work of the Spirit that needs to be done. You need to stop running from that judgment and you need to embrace it so that you can run headlong into the arms of grace and say, I have no other option. I have no other hope. I have no other possibility. Nothing that can save me. Nothing that can give me rest. Nothing that can give me assurance if grace doesn't do it. And if you let him do that in your heart, you will find a new relationship with Christ that you've never known. And you'll find the grace of God in ways that you never could have understood. And you'll sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, in ways that you've never understood before. And you must die. And you must do it in hope that you will be raised to a new life. This morning I ask you, I compel you by the word of God to let God do business with your heart. And I encourage you, I can tell you, I know this morning there's a stirring of the spirit of God. And there are those of you that need to respond. And you need to take a step of faith despite whatever you feel, despite whatever you think. You need to take a step of faith and let God deal with your heart. And I ask you that if you would do business with God, if you would come in these altars and you would pray or you would turn around in your chair, But don't just sit there and think. Don't just sit there and wait for the moment to pass. You must do business with God. You must have a change in your heart. Something must be different. And it won't be different unless you pursue the Lord. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace. Come to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come believing that your Father longs to embrace you and the barriers in your own heart, in your own mind that would be prison bars that would keep you from getting to Him. Run to Him and say, Lord, tear it down. Lord, remove the shackles. Remove the barrier. Remove the condemnation of my own heart and let me pass through in grace to get to this Christ and to get to his mercy. Oh, I compel you this morning, come to the altar and let God do business with your heart. Let's seek the Lord this morning. God Almighty, we thank you. We thank you that you love us, God, and we must become a people that understand grace. We must become a people who see our need for a Savior, Lord. Why are we here if we don't need him? Why would we come and why would we pray to him and why would we ask him for help and why would we read his word and why would we sing of grace if we don't need it? Why would we sing of the blood if we can save our own selves? Why would we continue in condemnation if we believe that there is freedom in the grace of God?
Why would we continue in shame if we believe that He bore our shame? That He was born naked into the world and hung naked on the cross to take my shame upon Himself that He might put His honor upon me and His approval of me and that the smile of the heart of God might be on my life through the pleasure of His Son. God, we ask You that You would deal with us this morning. Oh, Lamb of God, deliver me. Oh, Lamb that was slain, that you would give your righteousness to me. Oh, Lord, we ask you that you would have your way in our hearts. Turn us to the grace of God. Compel us to the grace of God. Compel us to turn to Jesus and nothing else. And, Lord, we ask that you would stir faith in us. Lord, by the Holy Ghost, let us see ourselves. But not only ourselves, let us see Jesus who delivers us from ourselves. That we might say, I've been crucified with Christ. I've died to myself. So that it is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God Almighty, that you would have your way and that you would deal with us by grace. Have your way in us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, let the Lord minister to your heart, saints. Let him have his way in you. Let him give you his grace. There's not a mountain too tall There's not a problem so small That Jesus can't resolve